Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. chapter 10. Let's start this morning with a good general question. How many of you consider yourselves at this moment to be alive? So now ignoring the folks in the room who are dead, how many of you who consider yourselves to be alive Take credit for the fact that you're alive. Oh, none of you, huh? No. No, how many of you would say I'm alive because God gave me life? Yeah, that'd be pretty much all of you, except, of course, the dead ones. (laughs) 
Well, that is very much the same way that faith works. Last week, I said righteousness, which is by the law, that is something that we do. We labor. We put in the work in order to try to justify ourselves by our flesh. And then I said that faith, the righteousness that is by faith, is what God does. It's not something that we do. It's something that is done external to us and then placed in us. The same way that you all just said, well, I'm alive, but I'm alive because God made me alive. So then God gets all the credit for the fact that I'm alive, but I am actually alive. Same deal with faith. You have faith because God gave you faith. God gave you the Holy Spirit who Jesus said, that spirit of truth, the world cannot receive, which means only some people receive the Holy Spirit. Those people who have the Holy Spirit from God do come to faith in Christ, the finished work of Christ. So then we do, in fact, believe. We do exercise faith. We do walk In faith, we do conduct our lives by faith, but we only do that because it is God who gave us the faith in the first place. As you look in the Bible, you look in the second chapter of Ephesians, and we read, you're saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If that's not enough to convince you that faith is a gift, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the author and the finisher of faith. So then if Jesus authored it and finished it, then he's taking credit for it. So whether we're talking about Ephesians, whether we're talking about Hebrews, the language of faith is always that God grants faith, gives faith to particular people, those particular people that he has chosen, those particular people who he is conforming to the image of his son. And in order to conform those people, to ultimately call, justify, and glorify those people, he brings those people to faith. And yet it is us that are faithing. We are believing. We are doing that thing. Now, that does not mean that having faith is a synergistic thing. I was told growing up that faith was something that you had to determine to have within yourself. You would look at, this was the exact language I was told, you would look at God's batting average and you would consider him to be a gentleman who keeps his word. And once you realize that God consistently keeps his word, you would then place your faith in him. And then you knew that you were saved because you had placed your faith in Christ, which is essentially faith in faith. You're having faith in your own faith because you have placed your faith in Jesus. That's not what the Bible says at all. It says that that faith, which is something that can only be brought about by the Holy Spirit, is something that you just naturally cannot do because you are dead in trespasses and sins, because you are so enwrapped with your own ego, your own sense of self-sufficiency. As a consequence, you cannot Come to faith in Christ. What you can do is justify yourself. What you can do is try to achieve your own righteousness. 
What you can do is keep your body under, buffet your body, keep the rules, keep the laws, see what God said and see how many of them you can do and then say, close enough, I hope that God grades on a curve. <laughs> what you can't do is throw yourself utterly and completely on the finished work of Christ and determine that because he has finished the work and is a perfect savior who saves perfectly, therefore you can have confidence that when you leave this world, you're going to be fine before God because of your faith in Christ. That's something you just cannot do were it not for the fact that God has placed his Holy Spirit inside you, granting you repentance, granting you faith, therefore I say again, this is not a synergistic work. It's not something that you and God are doing cooperatively. It's something that God is doing through you. Even though you are doing it, just like you are living, you wouldn't have the ability to live if God didn't first grant you life. You wouldn't have the ability to believe in Christ if God didn't first give you the faith to believe that. Does that all make sense? Yes, I just wanted to clarify my comment last week, which was uh, Paul saying that the righteousness that is by the law speaks like this. It says that you can, if you keep it perfectly, constantly, continually, from your youth all the way up, if you never sin, then maybe the law could justify you. But since nobody on the planet, save Jesus, has ever accomplished the law perfectly, constantly, and continually. That means that we are all judged by the law. We are all condemned by the law. So then where do we get righteousness? Paul says the righteousness that is by faith speaks on this wise. And this morning, all the new material we're going to look at in chapter 10 is Paul continuing to draw that contrast. That contrast between righteousness by the law, righteousness by doing, righteousness by your flesh versus righteousness by faith. And as we said last week, sometimes folks will say, well, that, that's just too easy. But Paul is going to say, this is what righteousness by faith looks like. In your heart you believe, with your mouth you confess Jesus Christ and that's salvation. You get salvation for that. When he says that, he's not creating a formula where, you know, if you just do this and say this, you're going to be saved. He predicates it on if you have faith, if you have belief in your heart, that's the part that's difficult for human beings. If you profess Jesus with your mouth because you have faith in your heart, then that's evidence that God is in the process of saving you. So he is going to contrast God's complete work of saving people through putting faith in them via his Holy Spirit. He's going to contrast that mode of salvation with the mode of salvation that the Jews were so enamored with that the Jews were instructed in, that the Jews had been doing for 1,400 years ever since Mount Sinai, which was the method of I'm going to do it according to the law. And all that results in, according to Paul, is that your sin is made more obviously sin. You got it? Got it. Okay, that's all introduction. We're going to start reading at chapter 10, verse 1, which says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for Israel, for them, is their salvation. Now, remember that, because by the time he gets to the end of chapter 10, 
and starts into chapter 11, he's going to say, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? What people is he talking about? He's talking about Israel. The Gentiles would naturally say, yes, we've been brought in. Yes, we're grafted in. And the reason that God has now turned his attention to us is because Israel has so rejected him. They have so rebelled against him. They have so fallen before the law. They simply are not people who are righteous or God-fearing or God-following. Therefore, clearly, God has just given up on them entirely because by the time you get to the end of chapter 10, you're going to see that Paul reaches into the Old Testament scripture and says Israel is guilty, 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 guilty. So then the question is, well, then has God given up on them? And Paul asks the question, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? And his answer is, no, never, may it never be. No way, don't even think that. So keep that in mind as you read through chapter 10. It starts with, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is their salvation. Chapter 11 starts with, God has not rejected his people. And by the time we get to the end of chapter 11, we're going to read, and so all Israel will be saved. So here we really do see the salvation that comes to people, the righteousness, the justification that comes to people by grace, through faith, and not through the works of the law. So that's the gigantic contrast that he's drawing. Yes, there's a whole lot of really important theological points being made here. Yes, we can absolutely apply it to us, but at this time Paul is applying it to Israel because Israel is really bad. And yet, God is really good. And that's where salvation comes from. Got it? Got it. Okay. Chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is their salvation. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, I told you last week, that means they do have a heat emanating from them. They have this desire. They have this zeal for God. But it's not according to knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Why didn't they subject themselves to the righteousness of God? Because Paul just said they don't know it. They don't know what the righteousness of God looks like. Therefore, they're trying to establish their own righteousness. But they don't know about the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is the righteousness that comes by faith in his son. But they don't know that. Now he's going to explain why they don't know that. And the answer is going to be because God is sovereign. Because God's in charge, therefore God has blinded them so that they wouldn't know that. And why did he do that? So that he could bring in Gentiles like you and I. So that we would then make Israel jealous, so that God would then turn his attention to Israel, draw them back. They're finally going to recognize the Savior, the one whom they have pierced. This is all God's big master plan at play. And is it worth pointing out 
you're not the center of the plan. It's not about you. It's not even really about the church. It is about the church in its connection to Israel, which chapter 11 is going to get into. But in the end, God is going to say the blessings are going to flow to Israel and then to the nations of the earth through Israel. But it all belongs to Israel. Every covenant you find in the Bible across the board belongs to Israel. Every prophet, they all prophesied about Israel. All of the stuff that we call the Old Testament, that's all about Israel. And then when you get to the New Testament, here we are reading the New Testament. And what's it about? Israel. So don't ever start thinking that the church is the know-all and end-all of God's master plan. The church is being used by God in order to cause jealousy to Israel because God is not finished with Israel. You got that? I was told at men's meeting on Tuesday night, by the way, someone was asked, is your church still obsessing over Israel? Yeah, because the Bible is still obsessing over Israel. And properly understood, the Bible is about Israel. You got that? Are you sick of hearing me say the word Israel? No. Okay. I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the telos. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who has faith. So to all those who have faith, faith in Christ, there is no more law by which they can establish their own righteousness. Christ is the very telos, the very end point, the very restriction. You can't go any further than this. He is the end point of righteousness or of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. If you have faith in Christ, That completes the righteousness transaction that you so desperately need. Faith in Christ is the only way that you can get actual righteousness, which Paul calls the righteousness of God. And if you're ignorant of the righteousness of God, you'll go about to try to establish your own righteousness. You'll start thinking you got to do more. And way too much of religion in the world says you got to do more. You got to establish your own righteousness. But the actual righteousness of God comes by faith. And once you have faith, belief in Christ, then Christ is the very end of the law for righteousness. Verse 5, for Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based in the law shall live by that righteousness. That's what I said earlier. If you do it, if you do it constantly, continually, perfectly, perpetually, if you could do it from the time you were born until the time you die, if you are completely guiltless, if you have never sinned at all in thought, word, or deed, if you're guilty of any one sin, says James, if you're guilty of breaking the law in any one point, then you're guilty of the whole law. But if you could do it, if you could keep it through your whole life, then Moses says you could be established if you could just do it. 
The problem is, of course, that's why Paul took the time back in Romans 7 to say, nobody's done it. And the problem is not the law. The law is fine. The law is good. The law is righteous. The problem's me. The problem's you. The problem is we can't do it. And so because we can't do it, there has to be some other answer or else no one gets saved. There has to be some other method by which God is saving people. It can't be by the law because no one can do the law. And the law is fine. The law is good. The law is right. The law is holy. There's not a thing wrong with the law. You can't blame the law. The law is right. The problem is you. You can't do it. Therefore, if anyone is going to be saved, God has to establish a different way of righteousness. And that different way of righteousness is faith. You got it? Am I boring you, silly? No. Okay. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness that is based on faith speaks like this. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? It says the word is near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. That very thing that the law could not do for you, faith results in righteousness. And Paul argues that that's the way it's been ever since back in Abraham's time. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And so now Paul is saying righteousness is attained by having faith in the finished work of Christ. So if you believe that in your heart, and if you confess that openly, that results in salvation. So how are you saved? How do you achieve perfect righteousness so that you'll stand before God and not have to be afraid? The only way you can do that is faith in Christ. You can't do it by your work. You can't do it by the law. You can't do it by your flesh. I think that's the reason that Paul is emphasizing, no, 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 no. It's not in your flesh. It's not in the stuff you do. It's in your heart. It's in the stuff you believe. It's not in the doing. It's in the believing. It's not in the doing, it's in the confessing, it's in the talking, it's in the being willing to say that you trust Christ implicitly. So that's a huge contrast. The contrast is, do it in your flesh, do it constantly, or just believe. And that's the contrast Paul is driving at, and he's going to continue to drive at that now. The scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. I told you last week that that means will not be shamed down. Now that is not a whosoever verse. That is not a whosoever wants to. That is not a verse that says whoever wants to come to Christ can come to Christ. 
He said, whoever believes in him will not be shamed down. The point that Paul is making is everyone that comes to Christ in faith will be saved, will be made righteous, will not be shamed. So the whosoever there has a delineation on it. It has a very particular group on it. It's whoever believes in Christ. That's not the people that are trying to justify themselves by the law. Those are not the people that Paul is talking about. He's talking about whoever has faith, whoever believes in Christ, in him, they will not be ashamed. But there is no distinction. Now you're going to get the whoever part. The whoever part is that there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. If it's a Jew that believes, if it's a Jew who has faith, even though he's had 1,400 years of the history of the law imposed on him and on his progenitors, if he believes, then he's going to get righteousness. And if it's a Gentile who does not have the law, who does not have the prophets, who does not have the oracles, who does not have the promises, if he believes in Christ, he too will be saved. There is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, for the same Lord is the Lord of all of them, who is abounding in riches for everyone who calls on him. If you simply call on him, Jew or Gentile, salvation is yours. Because, verse 13, because whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So then question, Paul's question is, well then, how are they going to call upon him? Since whoever calls on him is going to be saved. How are they going to call on him in whom they haven't yet had faith? They have to first have faith in him in order to call on him with any confidence But how are they going to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on him? How are they going to have faith in him if they haven't heard about him? Somebody has to confess him. Someone has to profess with their mouth. Someone has to do the talking. Somebody has to tell people about him. That's how people hearing about him can come to faith in him. So how then are they going to hear Without a preacher, without Caruso, without somebody to tell them, and how will they do that preaching unless they are, I told you last week, unless they are apostolos. It's the same word from which we get apostle. It's a sent one. Unless somebody is sent, they're not going to be able to preach, and if they don't preach, then people are not going to hear, and if people don't hear, they're not going to believe, and if they don't believe, they're not going to call. But they're going to call on him in whom they've believed once they have heard about him from a preacher who has been sent just as it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things I told you last week that just means the good news of good that phrase is literally the good news of good and so a genuine preacher is going to bring you good news of good things And then how well-timed is the word. It means in the proper season, at the proper moment. And then that leads to the idea of being bountiful, and that led to the translation of beautiful. It doesn't really mean how beautiful are my feet. I'm not bragging about the 
pediatric well-being of my outer appendages. I'm not claiming that I have really good feet. Instead, it says, how well-timed, how appropriate in season are the feet of those who bring good news about good. So then speaking of Israel, the argument is going to be, well then, verse 16, however, they did not, Israel did not all heed the good news, the good tidings. A moment ago, we saw the word glad tidings of good things. And so then Paul uses the exact same word. It's the same word that's translated gospel, the euangelion. And he says, however, they did not all heed the good tidings because Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Okay, Paul's logic here, Paul's thinking is, if Isaiah would even write the question, who has believed our report? then it's intrinsically clear that not everybody believed it. Not everybody heard it because Isaiah asked, well, who heard it? Now, what is that report? Well, we're going to go back and read it out of the book of Isaiah. So keep your finger there in Romans 10 and turn back to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 53, you've probably heard it again and again. This is the section of Isaiah that's often called the gospel in the Old Testament because it's just as clear a report of Christ as you're going to find anywhere in the Bible. And Isaiah's question is, who believed it? Who had faith in the report from Isaiah? Now, you know that I disagree with the big 53 in Isaiah 53. I think that 53 should be about three verses earlier because the end of chapter 52 goes together with 53. So we're going to start reading at chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. You're going to find out very quickly here that that servant is Christ. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you. So His appearance was marred more than any man. So he's the very servant of God, and yet his visage, his appearance, was more beaten than any man. And his form far more than the sons of men. And thus he shall sprinkle many nations, not just the Jews. He's going to sprinkle goyim, many nations. By the way, that sprinkling speaks of blood. If you go back and look at any of these sprinkling sacrifices that were done by the high priest, they always included blood. So it is the blood of Christ through his sacrifice that is going to sprinkle, which is a means of cleansing many nations, not just Jews, but Gentiles also. So Paul is picking this section of Isaiah very specifically to say, look, this has all been said before. I'm not making anything up. There's nothing novel here. Yes, of course, whoever believes, Jew or Gentile, can be, will be saved. But Isaiah said that. And they didn't believe it when Isaiah said it. Thus he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told to them, the nations, they're going to see it. And what they had not heard, 
they will understand. Paul's going to pick up that same idea and has already made reference to it, that the people who were not seeking righteousness actually received righteousness. Well, Isaiah said that too. Again, Paul's not making anything new up. Chapter 53, verse 1. So then, who has believed our report? And to whom was the arm of the Lord revealed? The might, the power of God, the arm, the strength of God. To whom was it revealed? Notice it has to be revealed. God has to show it to you. You're not going to understand the power of God. You're not going to understand the sovereignty of God. You're not going to understand the wisdom of God. You're not going to understand anything about God unless it is revealed to you. For he, Christ, says verse 2, for he grew up before God like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. And he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. And yet we ourselves esteemed him Stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, and yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. And he will see his offspring and will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, shall justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. And therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, and yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. 
right there in Isaiah. Isaiah is reporting the substitutionary death of Christ. Right there he is saying righteousness can be established no other way than through the death of Christ. Right there he is saying everything that the Jews needed to know about where they could find actual righteousness. That God was going to see the suffering of Christ and be satisfied with it. And yet Isaiah says, but who believes that? There it is, it's right there. Right there in the prophets, right there in the Old Testament, and yet, who believes it? So Paul in Romans 10, when talking about Israel and their unbelief, says, well, Isaiah has already declared the way of righteousness through faith. And then he asked the question, who believed our report? All right, we're back in Romans 10. They did not all heed the glad tidings. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Now, important at this moment that you know that the word report is the Greek word akoe. Because Paul is going to use that word akoe in the next verse. He's going to use it a couple of times. So faith, here's what Paul now concludes after having laid out his case, he concludes, so faith comes from hearing. That is the word, akoe. So we could actually read Isaiah's words as, Lord, who has believed what we're saying that can be heard? The act of hearing, the act of saying words, the act of reporting, as it says here. So then faith comes by that report, that story, that thing that we've already read out of the book of Isaiah. Those glad tidings of good things that apostles tell people so that people can have faith, so that they can call. Faith comes by echoe, actually hearing, and hearing comes by the word of God. That is not logos. That's not the typical word for word at that point it is the word rhema and what the word rhema can mean is the command of Christ in which case Paul is creating a theology here that says faith comes by hearing actual hearing Jesus talks about those who have ears and can't hear or have eyes but they can't see so Paul says there's a kind of real hearing, a real understanding that has to come as a gift from God. And that kind of hearing only comes by the command of Christ. Only if Christ commands you to hear are you going to hear what's being said. Or it can be read this way. So faith comes from hearing, hearing about Christ. Hearing words about, hearing the rhema about Christ. In which case, it's still part of the argument against the Jews who are trying to establish their own righteousness by their own works. Paul is saying, righteousness comes by faith, faith comes by hearing, and that hearing is only valid, is only good, only leads to righteousness if it's words about Christ. And those would be the good words about good. So you can read that verse either way. I actually think that second understanding fits the context a bit better. 
However, the hearing by the command of Christ fits our theology better. So whichever one works for you, just run with it. And later, just argue with each other out in the foyer about which one you... Okay. So I say to you, verse 18, but I say, well, then surely they've never heard, have they? That would be the natural excuse. The excuse from Israel would be, well, yes, we're trying to establish our own righteousness by the law. That's what Moses told us to do. And that's what God told Moses to have us do. And this whole thing about Jesus and righteousness through faith in him, we don't know anything about that because we've never heard that. So then we've never heard it. I say, surely they've never heard, have they? Paul's not going to let them off the hook. That would be too convenient an excuse. Well, sure, we're setting about to establish our own righteousness in our flesh by our own works, but that's all we've ever been told to do. We didn't know. Now Paul's going to do something really interesting. He's going to reach back into Psalm 19, and he's going to quote, in fact, turn back there for a moment. We're going to read the first few verses of Psalm 19. Turn there. Because this was important enough to Paul for him to quote it, so we ought to see what it actually says. Because here's the argument from the psalmist. This is what David writes, and it's going to sound very, very familiar to you. He's arguing that the creation speaks. That the very fact that the creation exists is enough to make you guilty. That you can't say, no one ever told me if you lived on this planet. If you ever walked outside and saw the stars in the heavens, if you ever woke up because it was morning, then you're without excuse. David says that in the Psalms. Then we're going to look at Paul picking it up in the book of Romans. He said it right at the beginning of his letter to the Romans, the same argument. The creation speaks in such a way as to make everybody guilty. You can't say, I didn't know. You can't say, nobody told me. The whole creation told you. Chapter 19, starting at verse 1. The heavens are telling the glory of God. Same thing Paul's going to argue in Romans. The heavens, the creation, the natural creation tells about the power, the glory, the existence of God. And their expanse, the expanse of the heavens is declaring the work of God's hands. I heard a argument this week on YouTube, of course. Because where else do all the really good theological arguments come from? There was a guy who was actually arguing that nothing, nothing became everything. And fortunately, the person he was debating said to him, no, nothing continues to beget nothing. If there's nothing, then there continues being nothing. Those are the basic Rules. That's how physics work. If there's nothing, 
it continues to be nothing. If there's something, then there's someone behind it. There has to be. There has to be a creator. I was watching another video, by the way, where several once upon a time noted atheist scientists came to the conclusion that there had to be a creator because Darwin's theory, they said, just doesn't even work mathematically. And that there's no evidence anywhere of change in speciation. There's no evidence anywhere that any one species became another species. And so they said, although Darwin, for his time, came up with a pretty good theory, he didn't know the irreducible complexity of cells. So he thought that cells were the smallest matter that there was. In other words, all I'm getting at is the very way that the creation exists, the very fact that it does exist, bespeaks a creator. In its complexity, in its cellular and in its uh, atomic level of complexity, it is so fascinatingly complex. I don't know what other word to use for it. The tons and tons and tons of information that has to go on for a single cell to exist and operate is mind-boggling. Okay, well, that's what David's getting at. David says the very fact that the creation exists and it exists like it exists, that tells you everything you need to know. At least enough to hold you guilty. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. The very fact that night works the very fact that the sun and the moon and the stars are in their orbits and that nothing's constantly crashing into each other, the very fact that we count on the fact that it's going to be day and it's going to be night and it's going to be seasons and these things are going to work, that very operation reveals the knowledge behind the operation. Look, if I tried to, this is the classic argument, if I tried to convince you that this watch right here that I'm wearing just sprang into existence, ex nihilo. Nothing caused it. It just sprang into existence. You'd say, we have to put Jim in a padded cell because he's gone nutty and he's not coming back anytime soon. If I was convinced that this watch just sprang into existence, you would know that I was telling a story because this watch has to have had a maker because of the complexity of it. The fact that it works says a maker made it. Now we're talking about the whole universe, which is a giant clock, which is running, which is how we measure time, by the way. And yet there are people who claim, well, no one made that. It just sprang into being. Which means everybody needs to go to a padded cell <laughs> because they've all gone around the bend and they're not coming back anytime soon. The writer here, David, says... Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no actual speech. It's not speaking words, he's now saying in verse 3. 
nor are there any actual words. Their voice, they don't have a voice that they're speaking, and yet the very fact that they exist without words proves the knowledge of the one who made it. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances have gone out to the ends of the earth. If that is true, then who's guiltless? Nobody. Anybody living on this planet can't say they didn't know. And the utterances have gone to the end of the earth. In them, the heavens, he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices like a strong man to then run its course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit is from one end to the other of them. Which, by the way, implies that he understands that planets are in rotation and orbiting. There's nothing hidden from the heat of the sun. And then he goes on to talk about the law of the Lord. Go back to Romans 10. Well, at least back to the book of Romans. Go to Romans chapter 1 for a moment. Chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, from the heavens, from the creation. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Why do men say that nothing became everything? Because they're suppressing the truth. The truth is right in front of them. The truth is on display. All they have to do is look at it. But they suppress the truth. Why? Because they're unrighteous. What's the whole conversation in chapter 10 about? Righteousness. Where does real righteousness come from? Unrighteous men, men with no righteousness, hold that truth down. Because, verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, within the heavens. For God made it evident to human beings by what he created. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have all been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Okay, so whether it's David or whether it's Paul, all the way through the Bible, it says the same thing, which is the creation has enough evidence in it that to deny the existence of God leaves you guilty and you can't say you didn't know. Okay, well, that's all the background for what Paul is saying here in chapter 10. Verse 18, but I say, surely they've never heard, have they? Indeed, they have. And now he quotes the psalm we just read. Their voice has gone out into all the earth. And their words have gone to the ends of the world. Therefore, Israel should have known. Israel is guilty. They can't use that excuse. Verse 19, but I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? They didn't know all that. Okay, sure, it's written in their scripture. Sure, it's already been declared by the prophets. Sure, Isaiah has already spelled all of that out, the gospel in the Old Testament. Sure, they would already know that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for faith. They should know all that, right? Well, they don't know. 
they're going to say at some point, oh, oh, we didn't know. No one told us. Surely Israel did not know, did they? Well, here's the truth. At first, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. That's the Greek word ethnos. It's the word from which we get ethnic. An ethnic group is a nation of people. But here he's saying, I'm going to make you jealous by that which is not Israel. Israel is the nation, and I'm going to make you jealous by someone who's not you. Someone who's not part of Israel. By a nation, ethnos, Gentiles, who are without understanding, I'm going to anger you. That's what he says to Israel. I'm going to make you jealous by people who are not you, by a bunch of Gentile people who have no understanding, and I'm going to do that to make you angry. I'm going to do that so that you see that righteousness through faith has come through Christ, and that jealousy is going to drive you to Christ. That's the master plan. By the way, let's just check this real quick. Could any of you have thought that up? No. I mean, that's a genius plan. That's a grand, eternal plan. And you're just riding along in the middle of it. You get to witness what God is doing at this very moment. At this moment, because you're in the times of the Gentiles, because you're in that period where you're waiting for the fullness of the Gentiles to come in, right now during this church period, right now as God is dealing with Gentiles to bring them to Christ through faith, you get to watch the master plan of God at work. And by the way, if it's working for you, Don't deny that it's going to work for Israel. He found you. He's going to find Israel. And he found you not because of you. He found you because he's making Israel jealous and angry. That's why you're in. That's why the grace of God has come to you. It wasn't because you were just so darn good. It wasn't because you run faster, jump higher. It's not because you were fun at a party. It's not because it just wouldn't be heaven without you. He came to you, brought you to faith through his own sovereign election. Why? To make Israel jealous. This is the master plan of God at work. I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. And by a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah, says Paul in verse 20, and Isaiah gets even bolder. If you don't think that was clear enough, now he's going to say, yeah, but Isaiah really lays it out. And says, I was found by those who weren't even seeking me. That'd be Leon. That'd be Joni. That'd be Conrad. You get the picture? Here, we'll test it. Betty, when you came to faith, were you looking for Jesus? No. He came and got you, didn't he? He did. He did. He came and called you to himself because he chose by his own sovereign grace to come get you. 
Isn't that astounding? That is exactly, you have now proven that in real time, in real history, in your own life, in the faith that you have, you've proven that Isaiah is correct. Because Isaiah said that God was going to be found by those who weren't seeking him. And you just said you were found by God when you weren't seeking him. You've just validated, you've just proven Isaiah to be correct. You've just proven biblical soteriology to be accurate. And the biblical soteriology is God saves who he wants to save. And if he saved you, just be really, really grateful. Because he saved you as part of the plan to make Israel jealous and angry. I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest, obvious to those who did not ask for me. People who weren't even looking, weren't even asking, God chose them. God interrupted their lives. God introduced himself to them. God drew them to himself. And he did that by his astounding grace. But as for Israel, says the next verse, by the way, in the book of Isaiah, these are actually back-to-back verses. It's Isaiah 65, verses 1 and 2. So Paul is quoting right what Isaiah said. Isaiah was very bold when talking about Gentiles and said, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, then he says, next verse, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate, hard-headed people. Difficult, stubborn, disobedient people. That's what Israel's described as. Disobedient, obstinate, hard-headed people. And all day long, God says, I've put out my hand to you. I've been reaching out to you, stretching out my hand over and over. But you're too obstinate. You're too difficult to get along with. You are a disobedient people. And so I'm going to turn to the Gentiles. To make you jealous and to make you angry. Can you see then why chapter 11 would start with the question, knowing all that about Israel, knowing what the prophets have already said about Israel, knowing that he's quoting that Isaiah has said that they're just disobedient and obstinate people. You could see then why why the Gentiles reading this would say, oh, I get it. God's done with Israel. Oh, he's turned to us. Oh, I see. That's why later in chapter 11, Paul's going to say, you wild olive branches that have been grafted into Israel's root, don't brag against the natural branches because God's going to graft them back in again too. You have no room to brag if you understand this theology. If you understand your place in the big scheme of God's master plan, you have no bragging rights. It's not because of you. It's because of God. And it's because of his dealings with his chosen elect people. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? And his answer is no, never. No, may it never be. Don't even think that. Don't even pretend that's the case. God has not rejected his people, 
for I too am an Israelite. Paul's going to argue now, look, if God rejected Israel outright, then he'd have saved no Israelites. But look, he saved me. Paul speaking. I'm speaking for Paul right now. I'm doing my Paul impression. He saved me, therefore he has not rejected Israel outright. Then he's going to argue God has saved a remnant of Israel. And then he's going to prove that from the scripture. He just keeps going back and saying, I'm not making anything up. I'm not telling you anything new. This is the way it's always been. This is what the scripture says. I too am an Israelite. I am a descendant of Abraham. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Think about Paul's theology. Think about what he's already told you in what we call chapter 8. He has already told you that whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Furthermore, those that he predestined, those are the ones he called, those are the ones that he justified, those are the ones that he glorified. Paul uses this word foreknew very specifically. When Paul talks about those that God foreknew, he's talking about those people that already have a relationship with God because God has already established the relationship with them. So then, has God rejected? Can God reject? Is it even possible for God to reject the people whom he foreknew? Okay, now when we read Romans 8, where it said, whom he foreknew, he predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son, we all thought, oh great, he's talking about us. And yes, he is. Yeah, he foreknew us. That's why he chose us. That's why he's saving us. That's why he called us, justified us, glorified us, because we're the ones that he foreknew. We're the ones that he had the relationship with. So, if we are the ones that God foreknew, but then God can reject people he foreknew, where's your confidence? Gone. Just gone. Because he's a God that changes his mind, who can say, I've had relationship with you since forever, because I don't change. I foreknew you in advance before you ever got here, but then I reject you. Okay, well, that's essentially what anybody is saying who says God is finished with Israel. There are deep, deep theological implications of the idea that God has rejected Israel. If because of your system you end up saying that God rejects Israel, then you're denying what Paul says and you're creating a God, unlike the God of the Bible, you're creating a God who rejects the people he foreknew. And that gives you zero confidence. If you just read what the Bible says, it says that God has not rejected the people whom he foreknew. Paul says, I'm living evidence of that. The very fact that he's given me faith, the very fact that he has drawn me to himself, the very fact that Christ appeared to me on the Emmaus Road is evidence. The very fact that Pentecost happened and 3,000 Jews, Israelites, were saved. Two weeks later, maybe a week later, 5,000 more, all Jews. Evidence, proof that God has not 
rejected Israel utterly and outright. I don't care what your silly theology is. I don't care what your silly system is. The Bible says God has not rejected the people whom he foreknew. The very fact that he was saving Jews when Paul was writing this is evidence and proof of that. You got it? Or do you not know what the scripture says? That's Paul's next argument, by the way. Paul's next argument is just like what I keep saying. What does the Bible say? What, 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 what does the Bible say? I don't care about your silly system. I don't care about your wrong theology. I don't care that that's what the church told you. I don't care that you read a good book by a good writer who said something else. What does the Bible say? Paul makes the exact same argument. Or do you not know what the scripture says? Because the scripture says about Elijah, how he pled with God against Israel. And he said, Lord, they have killed thy prophets. This is when Elijah was on the run, when he was fearing for his life because Ahab and uh, Jezebel were after him. And so he cries out to God and says, they've killed everybody. It's down to me. I'm the last of them. Lord, they have killed thy prophets. They have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they're seeking my life. You can hear intrinsic in that. He's saying, what are we going to do? Because when they kill me, it's over. When they kill me, it's done. Your religion is over. It's Oh, well, nice try. Good going, God. They have killed the prophets. They've torn down your altars, your places of worship. And I'm the only one left, and now they're seeking my life. Verse 4, but what is the divine response to him? God said, I have kept to myself. I've kept people for myself. For my worship, for my glory, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I did that. They didn't decide it. They didn't decide that Baal wasn't to be worshipped and they were going to follow the law. The very fact that they have not apostatized against me is because I kept them. Why are you still here why do you still believe? No, literally, as long as I'm preaching, why are you still here? Why, why, why do you still care about the things of God? Why do you still read your Bible? Why are you re- raising your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord? Why do you care about the things of God? It's because he has not only chosen you, not only foreknown you, not only drawn you to himself, but then he has kept you and kept you and kept you and kept you because every single day you are absolutely bombarded with this world and with its temptations and with everything that would try to draw you away. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers, spiritual wickedness on high and the rulers of the darkness of this world. And if he didn't keep you, you're gone. You're gone like a shot. But he keeps you day to day to day to day. And here he answered Elijah, you think that I would let it be down to you? And then when you're dead, it's over? You think that's the way I work? There are 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 
And then notice this. This is really important. Notice that Elijah didn't know them. Elijah had no idea. God was like, you don't need to know that. This is all on a need-to-know basis. And you don't need to know that there are 7,000 that have not bowed the knee. I've kept them for myself. Don't start thinking you're so important that you're the end-all of my plan here on earth. In other words, even if they killed Elijah, which, by the way, they couldn't because he sailed off in a chariot, but even if they had, God's fine. He's got 7,000 more. He can put his spirit of prophecy on anybody he wants, anytime he wants, proven by the fact that he put it on Elisha. God's in no danger. God's not afraid. God is not worried. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he kept for himself 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. So here's the point of bringing that up. Verse 5, Paul says, in the same way, there has also come to be at this present time a remnant according to God's gracious election. No, Israel is not wiped out. No, Israel is not cast away. There are some within Israel who believe in Christ, and the only reason they do it is the same reason we do it, because of God's gracious election. And he used that word grace on purpose so that in verse 6 he could say, if it is by grace, then it's no longer on the basis of works. Remember, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. He's the end of it. Well, this is the same idea. It has to be by grace. And if it's by grace, it can't be by works or else grace is no longer grace. The word grace has a definition. Even though people use the word grace far too often in modern religion without knowing what it actually means or without using it properly, the very fact is, the fact is, grace has a definition. And grace means favor, kindness from God that you did not earn. So then Paul's argument is, if God gives you righteousness or salvation by what you do, then you earned it. And then that's not grace. But since it is a salvation that is based in the grace of God, who elects people, then it can't be by works. Therefore, it can't be by the law. Therefore, Christ is indeed the end of the law for righteousness. It's by faith. It's by grace. And that's the only way that people get saved. That's the only way that people attain genuine righteousness. That's Paul's argument. You get it? It's a pretty darn convincing argument, isn't it? If you just let the Bible say what it says, Paul is laying out the master plan. We just need to arrange our thinking accordingly. And it gives God the glory. And it gives God all the glory. See, you shouldn't have said that because that triggered my brain. But the reason today, standing here right now, the reason that I am a believer in sovereign grace is because I grew up in what is called Arminianism. I grew up in works-based Christianity 
I grew up in that Christianity so-called that said it's all up to me. It's all what I do and I have to choose and I have to work and I have to do all that stuff. In other words, I grew up in the religion that was all sinner-centric. It was all based on me at the center of it. God was waiting up there on his throne, wringing his great eternal hands, hoping that somebody would pick him. You don't find that God anywhere in the Bible. The reason that I am convinced of sovereign grace or reformed theology, whatever nickname you want to give it, the reason that I'm so convinced of it is because, just like Tom said, it gives God all the glory. I can worship that God. Amen. The God who's completely in charge of the master plan, I can worship that God. So, so there. Yes, sir. As an example, uh, I wasn't looking for God. We have Abram, who was just enjoying his jewelry. Just hanging out in Ur of the Chaldees. Absolutely. Yeah. And he was given a ton of faith to do what he did. But God, God made a beautiful degree, decree that through him and through his nation, all the other nations would be blessed. Yeah. I believe that. That's a fact. Yes, ma'am. As an example of men suppressing the truth, just this morning I heard that the octopus's uh, DNA doesn't match anything else on Earth. Therefore, they came to the logical conclusion that octopuses have come from outer space. Wow. Now, I'm going to repeat that, and you correct me if I get any of it wrong, but I'm going to repeat that for the folks on the Internet. Because I don't know from way back there if this microphone picked up everything you said. You saw, now was this on TV, on the internet? Discovery Channel. Discovery Channel. It must be true. It must be true then. So you saw a scientist so-called who pointed out that the DNA of octopi is different than the DNA of every other living creature on earth. Therefore, they must have come from outer space. Science! Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Anything else? Any other questions? Any other comments? All right, well, grab a hymnal. I love this song. 445. No, not one.
listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.